glorious you are and how we long for you to return. So we look forward to that day. We anticipate it. We pray for it. And now, God, as we are here, you have us here for a reason. And so we pray that you would equip us for these days, for however long you tarry, that you would build in us that which is pleasing to you, grow us to be more like your son. And we pray even now in these moments in your word that you would do this by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. You're in the know. Did you know that you're in the know? You're in the know now. What do I mean by this? I mean, you know about Jesus. You know, many of you likely know not just about Jesus, but you actually know Jesus. Probably why you're here today. But you know the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus. You know a bit of what God is planning to do with this world and with us in it. And you know Jesus on a personal basis as your Savior, Lord, and King. Sometimes it may not feel like you're in the know. As you wrestle with not knowing God's full plans for your life here and now, His will for your life, you may feel like you're walking in the dark sometimes. Or maybe you struggle to decipher what God is doing in the world right now when everything seems so hard or even hopeless. Or we may grapple with seeing how God has been working throughout history. Why can it be so hard to see? Why can it seem so vague or confusing? Do you ever feel like you're in the dark when it comes to God's plans? You sometimes wish that he would just make everything plain and obvious to you. I'm not going to disparage those feelings today. I, too, sometimes wish things were clearer. But I want to encourage you today by considering what we already know and to help us realize how if we know Jesus, we already know all we really need to know. If you have a Bible, please turn in it to Ephesians chapter 3. Or you can find a Bible online very easily these days. But Ephesians 3, I want you to see these words from God's Word for yourself today. Ephesians chapter 3. As we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians together lately, we've already seen so much incredible truth about God, Jesus, the gospel, and the church. And chapter 2, which we wrapped up last week, talked about how non-Jewish believers have become part of God's people, and how all believers have been united together in Christ, who is our peace. And the chapter ended by letting us in on some of God's plans for the church, specifically. And it said this, I'll read from verse 19. 
In chapter 2, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As you can tell, Paul is very optimistic about the church. Right? Despite any challenges we face, God is building something glorious out of us. A pastor friend of mine, Daryl Dash, wrote a couple weeks back that he has a, quote, contrarian optimistic view of the church. It's not popular to be optimistic these days. It's contrarian. But he said, we're always in need of renewal and revival, but I'm still bullish about the church, and you should be too. God's at work in the church. Don't despair. Continue the good work that God has given you to do, and continue to pray for renewal. Don't deny problems. But don't give in to pessimism. Reports of the church's sickness and death are greatly exaggerated. We have every reason to hope. Amen to that. Now, if the end of Ephesians 2 was telling us to appreciate God's plans for the church, I think the beginning of chapter 3 is going to tell us to appreciate our place in the church. Not just the grand, but bring it down to us and say, what is our place in the church? And let's appreciate that. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, for this reason. So this connects to what was just said previously. So in light of God's grand transformation of his people, because of this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... Sorry, I just trailed off my thoughts for a minute. Just like Paul does here. <laughs> That's what he does. Now let me warn you. As we read this, the English grammar is not going to make any sense. All right? Because Paul starts with a thought in verse 1, but doesn't finish it at all. He actually doesn't resume this thought until all the way down in verse 14, where he says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. So really, he was starting to pray here, which means verses 2 to 13 are this massive parenthetical thought, a digression, an introduction to his prayer, like something that Paul feels people need to know before going any further. Before we see what that is, I want you to notice a couple quick things in verse 1 first. So first of all, it is believed that Paul wrote this letter of Ephesians while he was under house arrest in Rome. But he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome, does he? He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So he may be locked up, isolated, incarcerated, freedom's taken away, but he's only there because Jesus wanted him there. He's a prisoner, but he's... Jesus is prisoner. And that makes all the difference. And now you may think, well, if 
Jesus threw me in jail. That would really bother me. <laughs> right? like, isn't he supposed to care about us and our well-being? Why would he want us there? But Paul's confidence in the wisdom and sovereignty of God is so strong that this is not a bothersome thought to him, but instead a comforting one. Yes, Jesus cares about our well-being, our ultimate and eternal well-being most of all. But in order to secure that, we may need to go through some really painful stuff first. And so if Jesus knows that that's the best thing for us to go through is a trial, and we trust Jesus, then that enables us to then accept it or endure it better. Paul trusted Christ. So if Christ wanted him to be a prisoner, he'd happily be a prisoner for Christ. He'd be willing to die to himself, to live for others, and by all accounts, even while he's in prison, Paul just kept right on ministering. Right? He kept sharing the gospel with everyone in prison with him, kept writing letters, praying constantly, and more. So he was there, he's a prisoner, but he's Christ's prisoner. Second thing to notice in verse 1 is that Paul says he was a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. On behalf of you Gentiles. Now the reason Paul was in prison was because he kept preaching the gospel to Gentiles. If you look up the story of Paul's imprisonment in Acts, it all started when a mob of Jews saw him in the temple in Jerusalem and incited a riot against him, blaming him for speaking against the law, against the temple, and for bringing Gentiles into the temple. Now, it doesn't actually appear that he did bring Gentiles into the temple, but they had seen him previously with this guy who was coincidentally from Ephesus, and they'd assumed... And they, by guilt, by association, and they got Paul arrested. And that set Paul on a long course that would lead him to sitting imprisoned in Rome. Now, if I found out that one of you was particularly responsible for me being imprisoned, I doubt I'd be very happy about that. But Paul doesn't see, sound unhappy here at all. I, like, he doesn't sound angry or resentful or embittered about the situation he's in. He's there in prison on their behalf, for their sake, and that's okay with him. You know, that's what he's called to do. In fact, he, he quickly clarifies that his ministry to them was actually a stewardship of grace. Look at it in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So Paul says, I'm in prison for Jesus and for you, but perhaps he then thinks, wait a minute, some people maybe don't know what I'm talking about here. So I'm going to fill them in. So that's why he says, I'm, I'm assuming, by the way, that you know my job. You know my calling, what I'm supposed to do. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. A steward is someone who is tasked with managing or taking care of something for someone else. So, a house sitter, a pet sitter, or even a babysitter are all kinds of stewards today. 
or you may ask a financial advisor or investment broker to, to steward your money. In, in all these cases, we entrust something valuable to another, trusting them that they will take good care of it. So for Paul to say that he's been given a stewardship of God's grace, he's basically saying, God entrusted me with his grace, giving me a responsibility to make sure you get it too. This stewardship, he says, was given to me, which means even this job was a form of grace. Paul doesn't take credit for who he is in God's plans. He gives credit to God. And listen, no matter who we are, we owe our place or our position to the grace of God. This is important for me to remember as a pastor, as a, as a church leader, if you have any kind of role or position in church, you need to remember this too. This is important for you to remember whoever you are, in your family or in your community, whether you're a student or an employee, a public servant, a mom, a dad, a grandparent. If we have received God's grace, his grace isn't a gift he expects to terminate on us. You get that? His grace is not expected to terminate on us. We should be conduits for sharing his grace with others. We're going to see this more when we come to chapter 4, which we'll get to in the new year. But God has graciously given us gifts, not just so we enjoy and, and revel in his gifts, but so that we use those gifts to serve and build up the church. 1 Peter 4.10 says it plainly as well. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Stewards of grace. So if God has graced you, how are you stewarding his grace as a conduit for the good of others? How are you serving? How are you forsaking your pride or your privilege for others' benefit? Are you willing to stoop? Are you willing to, to give? Are you willing to sacrifice? By God's grace, I, I see this in many of you. But examine yourself. What are you doing with the grace that God has given to you. Now, usually by now in a sermon, I would have given you the main point of a passage. <laughs> but I haven't yet today, because today's main point, I don't think appears until verse 3. See, what moved Paul so much for him to, to take this detour, to have this huge parenthetical rant, if you will, it's what I alluded to at the start. He's in the know now. He's in the know, and he wants everyone else to be in the know too. In verse 3, he elaborates on what the grace God gave him looked like, specifically and personally. What did God want him to steward to share and share with others? Verse 2, again, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. 
this mystery Paul mentions becomes the clear theme of this whole passage. And what we'll see from these and the following verses is this one clear big idea that the mystery of Christ has now been graciously revealed to his people. Here, the mystery of Christ has now been graciously revealed to his people. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. What does Paul mean by mystery here? Because when we think about mystery, we likely think of something that needs to be figured out. Watson, the game is afoot. And we, we love a good mystery novel or movie. Or maybe you think of the old TV show, Unsolved Mysteries. Always crept me out. Uh, that show was actually recently revived, and I saw an article uh, from last year entitled, Unsolved Mysteries Returns Because 2020 Isn't Scary Enough. <laughs> the Bible uses mystery different than this. All right, it's different. We saw this back in chapter 1. Mystery in the Bible refers to something that was once hidden or unknown, but that is now revealed. It's now seen. Something beyond natural knowledge that has been opened up to us now. You could say biblical mysteries are solved mysteries. Okay, you could think also maybe as another picture of some of the awards that are given out in our culture today. The Oscars or Grammys or Emmys or Juno Awards. Or in sports, you got Most Valuable Player and Rookie of the Year Awards. In most of these cases, a vote takes place on who should receive these awards. But the results are not revealed until later on. Maybe the results get put into a sealed envelope and that gets opened for the first time at the awards show. Okay. For a while, who's going to win is a legitimate mystery. Even though it's already decided, we don't know. But eventually, it's publicly revealed. That's more like the mystery that Paul is talking about here. Other translations call it a mysterious plan or God's plan or inside story. For a while, there was legitimate mysteries regarding God's plan of salvation. What was he doing? How? When? Where? How? Who? But we're on the back end now. Right? The, after the envelope's already been opened, the mystery is revealed. And we know. What exactly is the mystery that's been revealed? Well, that's coming. But hold that thought. For now, Paul just says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Like God himself revealed this mystery to me. I saw inside the envelope. When he says he's written briefly about this before, that could refer when he, to when he talked about the mystery briefly earlier in Ephesians or in some other unknown letter. We don't know exactly. But we do know when this mystery was revealed to him. If you know Paul's story, you know how dramatic this revelation was. Paul, known then as Saul, was actively persecuting the early church. And he was on his way to Damascus to hunt down Christians there, put them in jail, when a bright light threw him to the ground and blinded him. And Jesus spoke directly to him, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus then told him, go into the city, and there you're going to learn what you must do. So Paul ends up being led by the hand into Damascus, eventually approached by a believer there who God used to miraculously heal his eyes and relay a message that Paul would be his chosen instrument that to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He'd officially been let in on God's open secret given supernatural insight into it. If you doubt that, I mean, he wrote half the New Testament. But here he, he makes the claim that his insight was self-evident in his writing. Look at verse 4. It says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And he's not bragging. He's just stating the facts. Establishing his credentials. Neither is he trying to keep the insight to himself. He wants them to grasp it too by reading and reflecting on what he was writing to them now. There in verse 4, the mystery is called the mystery of Christ or God's plan regarding Christ, which makes total sense as Christ was the answer to so many people's questions. What was God doing? Sending Christ. Who is to come? Christ. When? When Christ came. Right? In Christmas, we, we celebrate that. How was he going to save people? Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Christ was the fullest reflection, the fullest revelation of God to mankind. As Hebrews 1 tells us, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this is where the point I gave you comes into focus. The mystery of Christ has now been graciously revealed to his people. It's no longer a hidden mystery. It's an open secret. We can read it. We can read of it. We can perceive it. We can gain insight on it. And then verse 5 makes this crystal clear. So you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the mystery was an unrevealed mystery for many years, many generations, until God chose to reveal it. There was no other way we could have figured it out. And we couldn't have read some book or inquired of some expert or travel to some location, or follow a trail of clues, or ask Google. This mystery can only be revealed by divine revelation. Now that doesn't mean there weren't hints or clues of God's plan along the way. There were. Those were divinely revealed too. But Romans 1 tells us that the gospel was promised beforehand through God's prophets. Romans 3 tells us that both the law and the prophets, all of Scripture, bear witness to it. Even some specific details, like the fact that Gentiles would be included, can be seen. Like when God promised Abram that he'd be a blessing to all the families of the earth. 
or when Isaiah prophesied that the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Oh, there were clues. God clearly had global intentions all along, but people didn't get it. These were like puzzle pieces, if you will. Little parts of the picture. But when Jesus came, all the pieces came together and the full picture emerged. We might wonder, why would God have kept so much a secret? We read this, that it was not made known to the sons of man in other generations. And we go, why not? Why wasn't it revealed in the past? We're all along. Wouldn't that have made things so much easier when Jesus finally showed up? Right? Like, wouldn't people have flocked to him if that had been that much clearer? Maybe. Maybe not. We can only speculate. But regardless, that wasn't God's plan. These questions seem fair, but they're fairly pointless as well. We don't know why exactly God chose to reveal things the way he did, or why he revealed some things in advance, some things only on fulfillment, and why he has still not revealed others to us. What we do know is that there is no reason we deserve to know anything. There's no reason we deserve to know anything. God is not beholden to us. He doesn't owe us. We are not entitled to any revelation. And yet, in his grace, he has now revealed so much to us. It's an immense privilege. And may that privilege keep us humble, not proud. We did not earn any of this through superior wisdom or intellect. No, we only know because God wanted us to know. Because the Spirit of God revealed it. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, This was not made known to the men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's revealed by the Spirit. Even now, we're dependent on the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts. So we can personally understand and believe in Christ. The mystery of Christ has now been graciously revealed to his people. Are you starting to get why this was such a big deal? You're growing in appreciation of it? Without this, we'd still be hopelessly in the dark. Not ever knowing Jesus at all. And as we come to verse 6, our final verse for today, I think we can see why this was so important to Paul. Why is this so heavy on his heart here in Ephesians? As he overtly tells us what the mystery of Christ is, it echoes back to what we saw in chapter 2. Look, it says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through 
the gospel. So remember, we are one new people in Christ now, and he wants us to live as one, to get along, to have peace as his people. He wants us to live out of this identity, and that's actually the rest of the point I want you to see for today, that the mystery of Christ has now been graciously revealed to his people, so we can now know our new identity in Christ. We can now know our new identity in Christ. So far, Paul's been vague on what the mystery of Christ actually is, but not anymore. The mystery is all about who we are now in Christ Jesus. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And we may still have a hard time grasping the magnitude of this statement. So maybe an illustration will help. I'm borrowing this from Andrew Wilson, paraphrasing what he talks about here. He says to take the image of a river. Okay? Now, where he lives in the UK, he says nearby, there's a river. And this, as this river meanders across the countryside, it goes in huge, wide curves all across. Sometimes the river, as it curves, will find a shorter path, cutting off part of its flow and forming what are known as oxbow lakes, little lakes. They used to be part of the river. They're not anymore. Little dead ends of water. They're somewhat connected to the river, but the real river continues on toward the sea without them. Wilson explains that some people see Israel as the river, and the church is like one of those oxbow lakes. Like the church is part of God's people, but really it's only a detour to the main plan. Others think that Israel was a river that stopped flowing completely and got replaced, perhaps by a lake or by dry ground, but essentially the river, the Israel is dead and gone. The people of God have become a new thing altogether. Long live the church. This makes Israel seem rather odd, right? Historically, a, a river that once ran strong, but now is dead. But then Wilson claims that the Bible sees Israel more like, you could say, the Amazon River in South America. The Amazon begins in the mountains of Peru with small streams, springs of water, like Abraham and his first children. It doesn't look like much to start with. But as the water descends, it gradually grows in size and becomes quite large. When the river reaches the Brazilian rainforest, many other rivers start flowing into it and pouring into it. And these tributary rivers weren't part of the Amazon originally. They were different. But as soon as they flow into it, they take on the same identity as the Amazon, which has become this great body of water rushing across the continent. It becomes impossible then to, to separate the waters that have become one. And all these rivers joining together make the Amazon far bigger and more spectacular than it ever would have been without them. And by the time, I don't know if you know this fact, I found it 
mind-boggling. By the time the Amazon crashes and pours into the Atlantic Ocean, it's carrying more water than the next 10 biggest rivers in the world combined. Enough to make the saltwater ocean turn freshwater for up to 200 miles out to sea. Wow. That is what God has been doing for the past 2,000 years. Joining streams and rivers together into one. Uniting his people under the banner of Christ and transforming them into an unstoppable force. Remember that when we seem small or marginalized or unimportant today, that's not the reality. I don't know if you noticed, but like he did in chapter 2, Paul gives three more metaphors here. None of them are rivers, but these three pictures are all for all God's people, which the Gentiles have joined. It says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, in the original language, Paul repeats the same word with each image, the word with or together. The NIV captures this when it says, we are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise. Now, when people of that day wanted to emphasize a word, they would double it up. To triple a word would underscore it to really a, a superlative degree. Think of the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this triple echo of together should likewise alert us of its importance. You're brought together. You're brought together. You're brought together. First, Gentile believers that's most of us, are brought together as fellow heirs with Israel. Chapter 1 talked about the glorious inheritance that God's children receive or will obtain in Christ. Just like my children will, Lord willing, receive an inheritance from me one day, all God's children are destined to receive an inheritance from him. And we don't know many of the details of what that's going to consist of, but it will be beyond what we can imagine now. But if we are all going to share in the same eternal glory and riches one day, I think that means that we should be far quicker to share of any blessings we already have now. We're going to do this together. We should see each other as siblings brought into God's family with us, and we should look out for each other accordingly. Likewise, with the second image, that we are together members of the same body. Now, that's not just saying we're part of a great body of people. That's saying that we're like different members of one human body different parts of the body. That's how united we are to Christ, that we are considered members of his body. And that's how united we are to one another, organically. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this at length. 
and says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, members of the body work together as one. They need each other. My eyes need my hands. My hands need my arms. My limbs need my brain. My brain needs my heart. My heart needs my lungs, and so on. It's all interconnected. And so are we. From the most indispensable parts to the least, we need each other. So let's be thankful that Christ has united us so intimately to himself. Let's be mindful of our responsibility to act as his body here on earth. Let's be careful to, to serve faithfully, to care for one another in the body of Christ. And finally, Paul says that we are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. To partake is to take part in something along with others. It's often used to refer to food and drink as in partaking in a meal together. What is it that we're to partake together in now? The promise. What promise? Well, likely it refers back to God promising, you will be my people and I will be your God. We saw that in chapter 2 when Paul said, Gentiles used to be strangers to the covenants of promise. I will be your people, you will be my God. Also, chapter 1 talks about the Holy Spirit being the fulfillment of a promise. The old theologian Karl Barth says, because his presence manifests God's presence among his people, the Spirit is indeed the epitome of God's promise. Regardless of what this refers to exactly, it means that God's covenantal promises now extend to us we're his people. He's our God. He dwells in us now, and he will dwell with us again one day. We are, even now, partakers or sharers in all this. We get to experience this together. How is this all possible? Very simply, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel. The gospel brings this mystery to pass. Anyone in Christ gets this radically altered identity described here. Like, do you want to be an heir of God's richest blessings? Both now and when your life is over one day? Do you want to be a, a member of the body of Christ, given a, a close family and a clear mission? Do you want to be a partaker in the promises of God? Do you want him to be your God? Most of all, do you want to know Jesus? Being united to him? Receiving all that he has done for you. 
All the above is available to you right now, today, through the gospel. No matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, you can receive him today. You can be brought near by the blood of Christ, which was shed for you in your place. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes that he is risen from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. And this glorious mystery that we read about will be true of you. Peter O'Brien concludes by saying, As the gospel is proclaimed, Gentile men and women who hear its message and appropriate it for themselves are united with the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection. Thus, the gospel not only declares what is God's gracious plan, announcing the content of the mystery of Christ, it is also the instrument by which God achieves his purposes of bringing Gentiles to faith and incorporating them into his Son. It's both the message and the means. Like we sang earlier, come behold the wondrous mystery. Marvel at it. It's wondrous. In the dawning of the King, his birth, he dawned on us. In his living, in his suffering throughout his life, in the stead of ruined sinners, his death. Slain by death, God, the God of life. And yet, praise the Lord because he's alive. Jesus and his gospel give us the surest, most unwavering hope in light of all that we face now. And we must never underestimate the scope and the power of the gospel. We must never assume that we know it well enough and don't need to hear it again. We must never stop sharing it with everyone we can. For it truly is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And one day, his river is going to crash into the sea. Even more than that, as the Bible says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Like Knowing that this is what we belong to, knowing this identity, knowing, that the, knowing the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that changes everything in our lives now. And we can know this only by knowing the Lord Jesus. So are you in the know. Heavenly Father, awaken us. Lord, you know each heart that is here. You know where we are at. You know us intimately. And even though you see the depths of our evil, of our sin, you love us anyway. You want to draw us near. And so I pray that you would do that today in us, whether for the very first time 
or whether you're drawing us near again today to feel your love, be filled with your spirit for what you've called us to do. Lord, please work in us. Keep building us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen.